Amen. Uh, do you remember the Brady Bunch? Uh, I don't know how many hands up if you remember the Brady Bunch. Yes. Uh, Mike Brady with his three sons, Carol with her three daughters. Uh, it's all very sweet, but it's just fiction. It's pretend. Real life is never quite that easy, is it? I mean, the Brady Bunch have their ups and downs. Uh, Jan is jealous of Marsha. Marsha gets braces. The girls want to come along on the boys' camping trip. Apart from the odd misunderstanding, though, the message of the Brady Bunch is that when you blend a family like this, it's easy and fun. But real life's not like that. The reality with blended families is far different. Trying to get two different families to work together can take years. Two families that have been hurt by divorce or death often with all sorts of problems that that brings, uh, different ways of doing things and different priorities. And it all takes time and hard work, patience to build trust despite misunderstandings and arguments. Uh, time to build a new family with new rules and traditions and priorities. Now, have you noticed that that's the key issue that Paul is dealing with here in Galatians? It's got, the book of Galatians has some of the, the, the most amazing theology uh, in, in all of the New Testament, but sort of underneath that theology, there's this uh, personal problem, this relational problem, uh, blending two very different families into one Brady Bunch family. There are Christians from the Israel family. They're descended from their ancestor Abraham. And then there are Christians from the Gentile family. The Jews call them unclean because they don't have God's Old Testament law. But the Gentiles have heard about Jesus and they've trusted in Jesus and God has welcomed them into the family and he's given them his Holy Spirit simply by believing the message about Jesus, all without the background of being Jewish. And so now they're part of the family. But what we've seen in Galatians, the letter, over the last couple of weeks is how there are Jews who are saying to these Gentiles, if you really want to be part of this family, then you have to do things our way. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the food laws and the Sabbath. But all the way through his letter, Paul has warned these Gentile Christians, don't do it. No one is made right with God by keeping laws. Not even Abraham. All you need to do is trust God's promise. You didn't begin by trusting law-keeping to be saved, so, so don't start now. And that's where we got up to last week, chapter, halfway through chapter 3. Now what all of that means is that they are one family, whatever background they come from, because they've all been made part of the family in the same way by trusting Jesus, not by keeping the law, which was only for the Jews. And so here in today's passage, Paul sums it all up in verses 26 to 29, right there in the middle of the passage. And if you've got a pen, draw a big box around it, or some arrows, or some asterisks, or something. Verses 26 to 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now here are the practical implications of that. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So many differences, different roles and backgrounds and languages and ways of thinking and acting. But because everyone is joined to Jesus, then they are all united. They are one team because they wear one uniform. Now that's the conclusion. That's where we'll finish up today and we'll come back to some practical applications. But let's begin at the start of the passage to see how he gets to that conclusion. Uh, We saw last week in the first half of chapter 3 how verse 6 of chapter 3, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Bill read that passage for us from uh, Genesis at the start. God declared Abraham right. But Abraham was only the beginning. God promised verse 8 of uh, chapter 3 that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. All nations would be declared right with God simply by trusting God the way Abraham did. And then verse 13, this was at the end of our passage last week, uh, that blessing comes through Jesus who redeemed people from the curse of the law, who paid and rescued them. And what that means, verse 14 of chapter 3, is that anyone can receive the blessing God promised Abraham. Jew or Gentile. All they need to do is trust Jesus. Today's passage. But just in case Paul's opponents want to argue that Jesus brings something different, verse 15 to 18 goes on to show how Jesus has always been God's plan. And it was a plan that was well in place, that was in place well before the law was actually given. So, verse 15 might seem a bit random, but he says, let me give you an example from everyday life. When someone signs a contract, you can't come along later and change it or add to it. The original agreement stands. And Paul says, verse 16, that's what it was like when God promised Abraham. He's thinking of maybe Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. Or chapter 17 of Genesis, God established a covenant, an agreement or a contract with Abraham and his descendants or his seed, uh, that he would be their God. But as Paul thinks about those passages, he does something a bit tricky. And it's all to do with that word seed. Have a look at verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now you might think, hang on a minute. Seed in the context of Genesis means offspring or descendants or children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But the thing about the Hebrew word for seed, which is zera, 
is that you use that same word whether you're talking about one seed or many seeds. In fact, it's the same with English as well. We say one seed or we say a bucket of seed. Or we say fish. We say one fish, a school of fish. We don't say fishes. One sheep, a flock of sheep. We don't say a flock of sheeps. And Paul's point is that back in Genesis chapter 17, God makes that promise to Abraham and to his seed, not seeds. One, not many. Now, God could have said that the promise was to Abraham and his family or to Abraham and his descendants or his children. There's perfectly good Hebrew words for those. But instead, God chooses to use the word seed, which could mean one or it could mean many. And Paul's point in verse 16 is that God said seed deliberately to mean both descendants and, but also particularly Jesus. Way back to Abraham, God promised that Jesus would be the particular singular seed who would bless the nations. Now, what does that mean? Verse 17, all of that what was promised before God gave the law to Moses. The law came 430 years after the contract with Abraham was agreed to by God. Which means just like an, a regular contract, you can't change it. You can't change that original contract. The law does not change God's promise to bless the nations through Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's always been faith. Now that leads to the obvious question, I guess. If the law doesn't change the contract, then why have the law? And that's what verse 14 says. What was the point of the law? Sorry, verse 19. Verse 19. What was the point of the law? If God had already, if God had already decided to, how to bless the world and he promised it and made an agreement which couldn't be changed, why bring the law? Why does God give the law to Moses? Well, it wasn't because there was a problem with the original agreement. The problem was with the people. Verse 19 says, what when, that was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Now, transgression is another word for sin, but it specifically means sin which breaks a law. To transgress is to break a law. Before God gave the law, people still sinned. They still did what God told them not to do. But they weren't consciously or deliberately stepping over a line. They weren't breaking a law that they knew. But once the law came, once it was collected and written down and distributed, then sin became obvious. Sin became transgression or law breaking. Because there it was in black and white, that is sin, that is obedience. And you're on this side, you've transgressed. So why does God give the law? Well, firstly, the law shows us what sin is. 
Uh, the law is God's warning sign that tells us to stop before we cross the line. Danger ahead, stop here. The law is God's gracious description about how to please him so that we're not ignorant. And notice verse 19 how the law is only temporary. It's only in force until Jesus comes. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was a temporary measure to keep the Jews in line, in check, until something better came along. In fact, until God's original plan was put in place. A plan that would unite people around Jesus rather than divide them around keeping the law or not keeping the law. When Jesus would come and everyone would trust him. Down in verse 23, we see how the the law worked as a temporary solution. And Paul uses two pictures. Firstly, before Jesus came, the law was like a prison guard. Verse 23, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Now he's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about historically. The law teaches God's demands. It sets out punishment. But every Jew broke that law. Every Jew failed God's standards and so they were locked up, they were condemned, they were waiting to be released. That's the way the law works. The law is not a door that you can escape jail from. The the law is a, a, a jail that keeps you locked up. The second picture Paul uses is in verse 24 and 25. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that the law has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now that word for put in charge in verse 24, it's the same one as supervision in verse 25. If, perhaps if you have a different version of the Bible open in front of you, you might find that it uses the same word. Uh, It referred to a babysitter or a governess, a governor. Uh, It's the word that we get our English word pedagogy from, which is to do with teaching or instruction. And the Greek father would hand over responsibility of his children to a supervisor, a a pedagogue, uh, often a trusted slave, and it would be his responsibility to guide and to discipline and to raise the children. Uh, this supervisor would look after the child until he was old enough to look after himself or until he became, he or she became adults. Uh, now, that picture is what Paul says the law was doing. Until Jesus came, the law was the strict disciplinarian that kept the Jewish people in line until Jesus came. And the Jews as well as Gentiles could then be put right with God through Jesus. Uh, as we move into chapter 4, Paul expands on that idea and talks about how, Jews, uh, how children are heirs. Uh, they're in line to receive an inheritance, at least technically, but they don't receive that inheritance until they grow up. Paul says it's like that with the Jews. 
Before Jesus, they were looked after by their school teacher, by the law, but they were just infants. And so they were, they were no better than slaves. Until the right time came, when Jesus came and they became heirs until they inherited. Verse 4, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem or rescue those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who crawls out above, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. That's what Jesus has done. He's made Jews and Gentiles genuine sons and daughters. Much better than being an infant or being a slave. And so once Jesus came, the, the job that the law had to lock up, to be a prison guard or, or to supervise, to be a teacher, well, that was over. And so the shocking conclusion for the Jew is, is back there in verse 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now this is Paul saying, we Jews are no longer under the supervision of the law. It's, it's shocking. The prison doors have been opened. The governess has been fired. You've received your inheritance. And it's all because of Jesus, the one seed of Abraham. Jesus, one offspring who produces one family, verse 26, not two families. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now that's not, as Paul's thinking all, he's not thinking every single person in the world, he's thinking both Jew and Gentile. All of you, two families, are now one. All nations, just like God had promised to Abraham. Not us and them, not Jew and Gentile, separated by the law, one family, all receiving God's blessing by faith in Jesus. All receiving the inheritance of the Holy Spirit. Notice how Paul moves from we the Jews in verse 23 to you all in verse 26. You Galatians, you Gentiles and maybe a few Jews as well. There's no difference in our standing before God. We are all sons. All one because of what we share. Verse 27, For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now just stop and think about that verse for a moment. If you're paying attention, that should strike you as being weird, I think. It should puzzle you. How can you be baptised into a person? All of you were baptised into Christ. How can you clothe yourself with a person? Clothed with Christ. What's he mean? Baptised into Christ, I think, means something like connecting yourself to the one that you want to represent you. Being clothed with Christ, I think, is a similar idea. To put on Christ means 
to take for yourself the benefits that Christ has won. To put on his faithfulness, to put on his goodness and his righteousness, to put on his sonship, to put on his inheritance. What belongs to him now belongs to you. That's what it means to put it on. More than that, it's a way of describing how we are joined to Jesus. Union with Christ. It's a way of talking about how when we become Christians, he is in us and we are in him. Now these are great mysteries. I can't explain them or understand them fully. But that union, that being joined to Jesus, it comes through faith. It comes through faith. And I want to say it comes through both the faith of Jesus and our faith in Jesus. In his faithfulness. So I want you for a moment just to jump back up to verse 22 that describes how Jesus frees people. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised, blessing, being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe or who have faith. God promised Abraham that he would bless the world through Jesus. That blessing is given through faith in Jesus. Well, that's what our translation says, and and it's not wrong. But it's equally correct to translate that phrase, faith in Jesus, as faith of Jesus or faithfulness of Jesus. And and if you're looking in a Bible, you may actually have that as a, a footnote or faith of Jesus. Now, I think that's correct here because of how the sentence finishes. So that the promise given through the faithfulness of Jesus might be given to those who have faith. If both of those are describing our faith, then it becomes redundant uh, repetition if they're both talking about our faith. Uh, The promise comes through the faithfulness of Jesus to those of us who have faith in him. Now I think it actually makes verse 23 much clearer as well if we're thinking about what Jesus does, his faithfulness. Look at verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. I think most naturally that is talking about Jesus coming and being revealed rather than something that we do. Faith had already been revealed in Abraham. So why would faith be revealed at a particular point in time unless it's Jesus' perfect faith? Now that's what I think we mean by uh, Jesus' faith. We mean his faithfulness. We mean his perfect obedience. Never sinning. Never transgressing against God's law. And we know that for the one who always obeys God, he will bless them. And so Jesus earns God's blessing. Now what happens is when we trust what Jesus has done, when we trust God's promise that he will bless the world through Jesus, then what God does is he joins us to Jesus. 
We are united to Jesus. We are baptised into Jesus. We are clothed with Jesus. Now what does that mean if you're joined to someone who perfectly keeps God's law? Well, it means you perfectly keep God's law as well. He represents you. If he is perfectly faithful, then that means you are faithful. What Jesus does, you benefit from. You achieve as well. I sometimes talk about our sporting teams. I say, we won. I, we won an Olympic gold medal. Well, I didn't, but Australia did. Our representative won a gold medal. And so there's a sense in which I also, as a member of Australia, have won a gold medal. It's a little like that with Jesus and us being joined to Jesus and his faithfulness. Another way of saying we're joined to him is there in chapter 4, verse 6, when it says God pours the spirit of his son into our hearts. Uh, we have the spirit of Jesus living with us or in us, spiritually connected to us. And one of the symbolisms of baptism is it's a symbol of God's spirit being poured onto us as well as uh, of water that washes away sin. It, it, it's a symbol of God's spirit, of Jesus' spirit. Now that washing or that being, having God's spirit poured onto us, that's something that every Christian has. If you are here this morning and you're a Christian, then God has poured his spirit on you. And, and baptism represents what he's done. So baptism is, is a common, visible symbol of our unity as part of the Brady Bunch of this new family or this, um, this Brady Bunch of God's new family. And so Paul gets to his application. What does all that mean? Verse 28 of chapter 3. What it means is there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. All one in Jesus. We all wear the one uniform. We are all clothed with Christ, no matter where we come from, and so that means we are one team. Uh, Liverpool is a football team. Well, it's a city in England as well, but it's also, more importantly, <laughs> it's a football team in the English Premier League. Uh, on February 17 this year, they posted on social media, that's the post, that their starting team, when they played another team called Brentford, was made up of people from 11 different countries. 11 players on the field, 11 different countries. Starting with the goalkeeper, Ireland, Northern Ireland, France, the Netherlands and Scotland. Midfielders, England, Argentina, Argentina Japan and Portugal. Strikers, Colombia and Uruguay. Their manager is German. Their first substitute was from Egypt. That's 13 nations in the 13 players who, who uh, played a part in the game. But they are one team wearing one uniform. They are all working together for one goal. Now that's the church. I'm just thinking about it. I wonder whether we wouldn't have 13 nationalities here as well. 
All of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not saying there is no such thing as male or female. It's saying those differences don't matter anymore. Differences are real. I want to say differences are good. But they don't matter anymore. Social standing doesn't divide us. Westy or eastern suburbs. Thai or flannelette shirt. Middle class or welfare class. Single or married. Children or childless. None of those things matter. Education doesn't divide us. Blue collar or white collar. Although I think blue collar is now called fluoro or something, I think. A professional or trade, renter or homeowner. Gender does not divide us, male or female, with different ways of thinking and relating and different priorities and ways of solving problems. We are all one in Christ Jesus. All of those differences are real, but they're not barriers. They are strengths. They are advantages. They are ways that we can do more and reach more people in better and more diverse ways. Different experiences and biblical knowledge and spiritual gifts, different races and upbringings and worship preferences, small differences in our theology, age differences, health, interests, pastimes, none of those things divide us. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Look around you. Look around you. This is your family. One family. Now that means you should treasure this family. You should be loyal to it. You should honour it and protect it you won't let disagreements and misunderstandings threaten it. You are one family, all one in Christ Jesus. There is no room for pride or comparison, but instead it means there should be humility and acceptance and warmth, interest and compassion and patience and honesty and love. How will you live that out this week? It's wonderful that we're growing. There are new people here almost every week, but the flip side of that is that there are probably people you don't know. Almost certainly there are people you don't know. Ask people their names. Talk to them. Meet up for a coffee during the week. Pray for one another. Be generous, brave, kind, welcoming. Be a bridge builder, not a wall builder. Christ has broken down the walls. Don't build them up again. God's plan was always to bring together one family 
a joyful Brady Bunch family. Not under law, but under Jesus. Sometimes made up of people like you, but sometimes people who are very different. But all of us, one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for uh, your word to us today. Uh, Some theology, but also some very real practical challenges. Uh, So we pray that you would give us understanding, but also give us the heart uh, to put into practice what this means. May we rejoice in our differences, uh, but also give us grace and humility Uh, rather than pride and impatience. Uh, Give us uh, the heart to work hard uh, to build up one another rather than to tear us down. And we pray that in all of this you would build your kingdom in us and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen.